When Nathan Baring was 15 years old, he and his family faced a decision that would change the course of his life. We were driving through Denali National Park, and we were on a particular stretch of road that's very distinct in my mind because of how many times I've driven it between Fairbanks and Anchorage. And I got that email. That email came from organizers with the nonprofit Alaska Youth for Environmental Action, letting him know about an opportunity to join other young people from around the country who were suing the United States government. I remember being almost incredulous in how much, from the beginning, mom protested a little bit. You know, you don't just sue the federal government without consequence. A determined teen and a concerned parent, families everywhere can relate. What this family did in response and where it's taken them is one of the stories behind this episode. This is No Ordinary Lawsuit, a series about the landmark constitutional climate case, Juliana v. United States, its key players, and trial whenever it begins. I'm your host, Ambar Espinosa. On this episode, we're going to describe how the shared vision of a lawyer and a law professor helped build the case for the Juliana lawsuit. Julia Olson, founder of Our Children's Trust, recalls the moment they met. And we both talked about our approaches and our desires was really pivotal for me because I, I had someone telling me, yes, you can do this. Yes, go do this. And I will be here as a support. We'll learn more about their story and how a new legal theory started to change the way lawyers address the problem of climate change. For now, let's get back to Nathan. He's one of the 21 young Americans suing the United States government for choosing to enable and promote a fossil fuel energy system that it's known for a long time accelerates climate change. The government's actions, plaintiffs say, infringe on their constitutional rights to life, liberty, and property. Nathan began advocating for his rights as a young teenager when wood smoke contributed to poor air quality in Fairbanks, his hometown. Wood smoke triggered his asthma, which made it tough to play soccer. The trouble with burning things like coal and wood is that it generates fine particulate pollution, creating air quality that's harmful for children with developing lungs. Nathan remembers his mother, Sharon Baring, a school nurse, giving him an ultimatum. If the town didn't really clean up their air, she would consider not letting me play soccer in the future because of how dangerous and damaging it was to a developing lung. I don't remember my exact words, but I do remember being very frustrated. He was frustrated and upset with me. Um, And I said, okay, let's channel that energy into power. Where can you channel it? Let's start writing letters to the editor. Let's start, you know, lobbying at the borough assembly meetings. Nathan thought about what his mom said. I could choose to sit back and fume about it, or I could choose to put that anger into deliberate action. So Nathan did write letters to the editor about the wood smoke problem, and it generated some positive responses from readers. For about a year, he took up the cause of the air quality that affected him. Um, And that quickly morphed into the bigger issue that I saw plaguing Fairbanks and plaguing Alaska. And eventually I saw it plaguing the world, um, and that was climate change. Climate change is affecting Alaska at a rapid rate. According to the fourth National Climate Assessment released last month by the Trump administration, Alaska's temperatures have warmed twice as fast as a global average since the middle of the 20th century. 
I don't want to be quoted as saying it's the latest snowfall ever, but it's certainly one of the latest snowfalls on record in Fairbanks. The snow just is coming later and leaving earlier. Weather extremes from climate change also mean more intense ice storms. In 2013, Fairbanks declared a state of disaster after an ice storm caused power outages across the city. Nathan's family lost power for nearly a week. But climate change isn't affecting only winters in Alaska. Summers there are changing, too. We're definitely looking at, you know, increased wildfires in some areas. Tonight, firefighters continue to battle those out-of-control wildfires out west. In Alaska, large wildfires are still burning, having already destroyed dozens of homes. In 2015, 300 wildfires blazed across Alaska all at once. That summer, smoke from the wildfires surrounding Fairbanks gave rise to dangerous air quality that rivaled some of the world's smoggiest cities. As someone who suffers from asthma and allergies, Nathan struggles to breathe outside and play in sports during the wildfire season. He worries how more warming will change his home, how it will affect his deeply entrenched identity as a third-generation Alaskan, and his future. A lot of the impacts that I attribute to myself are much more psychological, a lot more fear-based. To take on these bigger issues, in high school, Nathan joined the Fairbanks chapter of the Alaska Youth for Environmental Action. That organization offers leadership training and opportunities to mobilize young people to make changes they want to see close to home. Each year, the group hosts a week-long civics and conservation summit that takes teens to the state capitol in Juneau. Every person got, um, I believe, three meetings, one with their representative, one with their senator, and then one with the governor. All this face time with elected officials exhausted the teens on this trip, except one. I, independent of any of the rest of the organization, actually made myself some insane number of meetings within the same day. Just walked myself right back to the Capitol, and I met with another like five or six legislators by myself. And this was me as a 15-year-old boy at the time. He lobbied these lawmakers because he believed they had a moral responsibility to meaningfully address climate change. Sharon told me Nathan also likes this sort of thing. Nate describes himself as a political nerd. He loves politics. Part of what comes out of being a political nerd and then also being from Alaska is I am very close friends with some politically opposite people. People that are literally diametrically opposed to me on every issue. You know, I have very, very devout evangelical Christians who would have voted for Ted Cruz, for example. And I have, you know, very staunchly libertarians who are not religious and think religion is stupid. He is genuinely curious about other people, especially people who are different, think differently than him. In addition to the politics and the climate change as being real central to my identity, the other part that is central to my identity is getting beyond this hyper-partisanship that we've developed in this country because um, it is so essential for the future of this country as well. Alaska Youth for Environmental Action knew about the work of our Children's Trust. That nonprofit, based in Eugene, Oregon, was about to help young Americans file a lawsuit against the U.S. government. The Alaska group's mentors thought Nathan might want to get involved and sent him an email. 
There was no question in his mind. Nathan wanted to be a co-plaintiff on the case, but his mom had reservations. You know, you don't just sue the federal government without consequence. This has the potential, come what may, to change the course of your life. So I need to hear, you know, that moral grounding that will sustain you through hard times as well as the easier times. So a kind of very important part of my life um, is my involvement with Quakerism, which is how I identify. It's a Protestant, uh, definitely a, a slightly more fluid sect of Christianity. We don't embrace the legal process very easily. You know, that's a last, last resort. We try really hard to resolve conflicts and come to, you know, understandings in other ways. Quakers are pacifists who strive to reach consensus on difficult decisions. In that spirit, Nathan's parents organized a meeting called a Clearness Committee. Clearness is just basically you sit with peers or with people who can help ask you questions that you may not have considered to help you be clear that this is not only a right decision for you, but a ripe decision for you to be tending. Um, I remember very distinctly asking the question, help me understand what's behind your need to do this. And I said, you know, Mom, I've, I have used every avenue of civics that I can think of, that I can use. I have lobbied, I have organized, I have written, I have marched. And um, him saying, look, Mom, what I get back from them is... Pat, Pat, you know, it's so nice that you're learning about the legislative process. Now go back and play soccer. The commentary and the letters to the editor were very much a dismissing him as just being a pawn, just being a, a voice for liberal agendas. Obviously, the parents are putting words in your mouth. Teachers are putting words in your mouth. You're not thinking for yourself. And he said, I need something to shake people up. To listen. You know, this is all I can see left for me to do. I felt like up until then, my voice hadn't really gone very far, or it certainly had not gone far enough when the predictions from scientists and scientists that I knew got dire and dire every year. And when young people have been not given the seat at the table that is quite literally determining the future that they will inherit, um, and it's being entirely determined by, you know, people in power, no matter their intentions or how good their intentions may be, they do not have to be here to experience the uh, consequences of the planet that they leave us. I felt it in my gut, like, you know what? You're right. And we have to walk with you and support you, come what may. And we don't know what it's going to be, but you're right. I heard that fire in the belly, the grounding that we needed to be able to say yes. That has really sustained me through all of this, and I hope, I believe it's sustaining him too. That long-term commitment matters because it's been more than three years since Nathan's lawyers filed the suit. Now he's a college freshman in Minnesota and voted for the first time in the 2018 midterm election. 
Since the lawsuit began, the federal government has filed more than a dozen motions in different federal courts to delay and stop it. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is still reviewing the federal government's most recent request. In the meantime, Nathan's family is still walking with him. Sharon traveled to Eugene for what would have been the first day of the trial on October 29, 2018. Because of delays from the Trump administration, trial did not begin as scheduled. Instead, on that day, the plaintiffs and thousands of supporters rallied outside the courthouse in Eugene and at courthouses across all 50 states. Sharon told me Nathan's father stayed home in Fairbanks, where he spoke at one of those solidarity rallies. Alaska Public Media's newscast included sound of Nathan's father, Tom Baring, reading a letter Nathan wrote to his Fairbanks supporters. This is no longer a scientific issue. It's not a scientific question. It's a moral and spiritual issue. And, yes. 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 and we are making it a legal issue as well. I still believe our justice system will prevail. I still believe we have the capacity for change even when the future looks bleak. I still believe in the power of youth voices and the power of youth activism. At the Eugene rally, Nathan and his co-plaintiffs said they're taking climate change to court because their lives are at risk. So litigation became a last stand that young people have to elevate their voices in our system. That's why the mission of our Children's Trust resonated with Nathan. Julia Olson is a nonprofit's founder and executive director and co-counsel in the case Juliana v. United States. Julia loves the outdoors. When she graduated from law school in California, she knew she wanted to work as a public interest environmental lawyer. For many years, she litigated on behalf of small organizations challenging projects that harmed the environment. It was really a big game of whack-a-mole, where there would be a project that would be proposed by a federal agency, and groups would come in, we would challenge that project, and we'd win, and then the project would come back. Environmental law became frustrating. It felt like we couldn't very often fully protect a resource that was threatened because these projects had nine lives. Julia was eight months pregnant with her second son when she saw former Vice President Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, about the threats of global warming. Future generations may well have occasion to ask themselves, what were our parents thinking? Why didn't they wake up when they had a chance? We have to hear that question from them now. When I think back to that moment of being in the small movie theater and crying through this whole movie and being hot and hugely pregnant, I just had this deep pit in my stomach and this feeling of why isn't someone doing something about this? <laughs> like, this is huge. Why are we taking such small steps. I felt called to do something different and bigger about climate change and to approach our legal toolbox in a different way. The documentary showed up in theaters during 2006. Around that time, 
a law professor in Eugene was reflecting on a domestic catastrophe that happened the year before. Really, I didn't give much attention to climate crisis until Hurricane Katrina struck. Mary Christina Wood taught at the University of Oregon then and now. She recalls that until the hurricane slammed into the Gulf Coast... Climate was just sold to the American public as a very far-off issue. Once that happened, and I read the accounts of dead bodies floating by people's houses and the destruction that it caused... I'll show you the parking lot of the hospital, give you an idea of how deep the water is. I began to look into climate crisis, and I actually read the science. I couldn't believe what I was reading. I thought, this is an existential issue. None of the other things I'm working on even matter if we don't have a climate system in balance. By that point, she had taught environmental and natural resources law for more than 20 years. Much like Julia, Mary felt as if she was spinning her wheels. I would see over and over and over again a pattern repeated throughout every single area of environmental law, whether it was pesticides or pollution or endangered species or land use, and that pattern was the agencies are not carrying out the statutes. The result, she says, is colossal environmental destruction permitted by government agencies from state to federal, like the Environmental Protection Agency. She's written a lot about this. Some of the examples that you gave are how many species we've lost, how many bodies of water are in jeopardy, how many wetlands and old-growth forests we've destroyed, um, our increased risk of of cancer, um, babies born with body burden. In other words, before they even get outside the womb, they are exposed to all of these toxins that we have released into the environment. And if we don't turn things around, um, we will not have a future for our children. Given the United States' poor track record of protecting the environment, Mary holds out little faith that statutes will solve the climate crisis. So she thought, We need to search for some principle that is much deeper and fundamental and really strikes at the heart of what rights do citizens have against their government. Moved by the damage of Hurricane Katrina, Mary poured her energy into studying climate change. She developed a legal approach that would hold government agencies accountable for recklessly endangering the atmosphere. She calls it atmospheric trust litigation, one of the legal principles applied in the Juliana case. Recently, Mary lectured about it at her law school. If we want the law to be relevant, we absolutely have to match the law with the climate reality. Statutory law won't work in time. The Juliana case is is made for our time. I conceived of atmospheric trust litigation for exactly this moment in time. I spent the next three years writing and speaking about what I called an atmospheric trust litigation approach. And it was a basic call to the legal community to file a suite of cases against federal and government trustees to demand action to protect the climate system and to file these on behalf of youth. And so for three years, I spoke about this approach, I mapped it out, and I was interviewed by many, many reporters. At a similar talk in 2010, the scholar and the litigator, both of them mothers, met for the first time. Julia Olson was sitting in the audience 
and I didn't know her. I knew who she was. She had a fantastic reputation as a litigator. You know, I think she had been meeting with a lot of different litigators and talking about the theory. And there was definitely a lot of interest, but she hadn't gotten any takers. My memory is telling her of sort of my general idea that was starting to form. And her expression of pure excitement and delight to have (laughs) a, a lawyer crazy enough to explore this concept with her. Anyone who knows Mary Wood will tell you she has infectious enthusiasm. And she can convince you of your ability to do just about anything. There is something important about that in in this world right now of lifting people up. And it's really what we're trying to do with our youth is we see this light in them and this energy, and many of them feel called to do this work, deeply called to do this work. Julia spearheaded a campaign that includes not only this federal lawsuit, but state lawsuits and petitions all over the U.S. All filed on behalf of children, all demanding enforcement of public trust protections for the climate system. Julia's nonprofit also supports young people and attorneys abroad who've filed climate change lawsuits against their governments. The legal theory and the connection between Mary Wood's work and her own, Julia says, has moved beyond a legal campaign and sparked a broader movement. What's more? The Juliana case is being taught now in over 30 law schools around the country, which is amazing for a case that hasn't even gone to trial. (laughs) And there's so many moments of people, not just in the legal realm, but everywhere who are identifying with this case and learning so much about democracy and our country and law by understanding what these young people are doing. Despite the U.S. government's unrelenting attempts to delay trial and have the case thrown out, Julia's not backing down. She and the legal team have asked the federal district court in Oregon and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to lift temporary stays on the Juliana case so that trial could begin in early 2019. You're listening to No Ordinary Lawsuit, a production of the nonprofit Our Children's Trust. Stay with us as we continue to tell the story of Juliana v. United States. Devin Gallagher, Caitlin Howard, Meg Ward, and I produce this podcast. Cheryl Duvall is our editor. Seth Augustus Quitner composes our music. If you enjoy the show, please consider reviewing us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can learn more about this podcast on our website, noordinarylawsuit.org. I'm Ampar Espinosa. Thank you for listening. <laughs>